Amen. Good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Billy. I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here, and that's a huge honor for me. Uh, today is an exciting day for a number of reasons. One, the Easter extravaganza is going to be awesome, so please stay and join us uh, for that. A lot of people are doing a lot of really uh, good labor out there to get ready for you guys, food and everything, so definitely take advantage of that. Um, today, also, I want to introduce you to our newest pastor, and so Ethan and Cynthia, I'm going to invite them out. Uh, this is Ethan and Cynthia Floyd. Many of you may recognize Ethan. He's from here uh, and moved off and went overseas for a little bit. And then he has been pastoring at another church in Brunswick. But now he's back home and he's going to be stepping in as our sending pastor. And uh, you may say, well, Billy, what is a sending pastor? Well, for us as a church, we are committed uh, to the Great Commission, which is to make disciples of all nations. And so as a church, uh, not only are we interested in connecting people to God, equipping people, but we also want to be a part of sending them into the community locally to live sin, into the world to live sin. And so Ethan uh, will be helping us in that process. And so please take a moment. Uh, he'll be outside after service. Stop by, introduce yourself. Uh, if he texts you or call you, know that he is not a scam artist. He's with us. And uh, we're excited to have him and his family. They also have a new baby on the way. So y'all welcome Ethan. All right, appreciate it. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we'll be uh, this morning. Uh, we're in a series called The Gospel Changes Everything. And uh, it's an important uh, series for us as a church because I want you guys in our church to understand that when anybody comes face to face with Christ and they come to know Jesus, it really does change everything about you. It changes how you think, it changes what you live for, uh, it changes how you talk, how you walk, all of the above. And so we're going to see that in the Bible, when people come face to face with Jesus, that's exactly what happens. And so if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 1 and uh, let's read together. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Verse 3. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. I want you to underline had to right there. Verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob, that's talking about Jacob in the Old Testament in Genesis, had given to his son Joseph, right? Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon, underline noon, because that's a big deal. I'll tell you what that means in a minute. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Verse 8, his disciples at this point had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So there's a few context details that you need to understand uh, that, that, that John has already pointed out to us. Number one is that had to. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, and, and by the way, most Jews during this context would not go through Samaria at all because they didn't like 
the Samaritans. And so I'll tell you how much they didn't like them. Uh, the, the trip from Judea, which is around Jerusalem, up to Galilee was pretty much a south to north travel route. Uh, but the, town, the, the area in between them was where the Samaritans lived. And so the Jews were in Jerusalem, and many times they would go up to Galilee. And instead of going in a direct line, which is the, the quickest way to get to a place, they would go around Samaria because they disliked these people so much. So the question is, well, why did they dislike them? Well, for a number of reasons. They, uh, back in the day, uh, the Assyrians, when they came in and basically took over the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, uh, basically they dispersed Jewish people kind of in a bunch of different directions. Well, one of those directions was in Samaria. Well, in Samaria, there were people that weren't uh, Jewish, right? And so uh, that, in the Jews' mind, became like they were kind of mixed breeds and not worth it, almost like a mutt, so to speak. Uh, if you're thinking about a dog, uh, and and they, what they did is they began to syncretize with these Samaritans. And so these Jewish people not only began to intermarry with these people and have babies uh, with this different uh, type of people, they, they also uh, began to mix religions. And so they kind of uh, really... Uh, mixed up Judaism with some other things. And so there were cultural differences, there were religious differences, and then just traditionally Jewish people were kind of, uh, they were kind of arrogant in their own like heritage and didn't really think a lot of other people that weren't uh, that way. Not all, so don't go around hating Jewish people, but in this day that was kind of what was going on. And so literally instead of taking the three-day journey from Jerusalem up to Galilee, most Jewish people would take a six-day journey around it. Like, how much do you have to hate people to walk for three extra days to get to a place? I mean, that's a next-level uh, racism uh, right there. And so what does Jesus do? Like, he busts up in this context, and he's like, what are y'all doing? And basically walks straight through Samaria to Samaria, stops at the well, and begins to talk and fellowship with these different Samaritan uh, people. And in this moment, we see Jesus breaking down cultural barriers, religious barriers, racial barriers, uh, any kind of traditions that they had set up. Jesus was not interested in those things. And I would tell you that this is the essence of the gospel. There are so many traditions and religious practices and, 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 and race, racial things and eth ethnic uh, guidelines that we've set up that are not in the Bible. And many people will try to point to the Bible to tell you that that's why they're there, but that's not what the gospel's about. The gospel has always been about breaking down barriers. And that's exactly what Jesus does here, is that the gospel has always brought diverse people together. That's why the church, church should be diverse. It shouldn't just be white church and black church and Chinese church. No, God died for all people to bring all tribe, every tribe, every nation before him unified under the gospel. This is what we see happening here in this story. Not only that, we also get this picture of noon, right? And so uh, why is it significant uh, that this lady is at the well at noon? Well, let me tell you, uh, Jerusalem, uh, Galilee, Samaria is pretty hot, right? In the summertime, it's pretty hot, pretty year round. Most people would not come and draw water in the middle of the day because it was so hot. I mean, you're carrying some heavy, I mean, that, and it's, it's like going on a jog. How many of you guys go on a jog at noon in the day? No, if you do, you need to go see the doctor because you're crazy. 
On the other side, they would come in the morning when it was cool or they'd come right before dark when it was cool. And so this lady is there at noon. Why? Well, we start to realize she's ashamed about something. She didn't want to see other people. She was trying to uh, not see anyone and avoid other people. And we're about to figure out why. why. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so this woman doesn't quite get what's going on yet. She's face to face with the God of the universe and she thinks they're talking about physical realities, right? And, and they are in a way, but Jesus many times will use physical uh, realities to communicate spiritual truths. And so what he's doing is he's showing this lady, she thinks he just came to get some water, but he's telling her about some deeper water, and that water is salvation. And he, we know that because later on in John, Jesus will talk this way again. He says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And so we see in John 7, uh, Jesus explains the same thing. If you're thirsty and you realize that you're not thirsting for physical water, but spiritual water, come to me and I will do the same thing that he's telling her. I will put a spring of water in you and it will well up to eternal life. He's talking about salvation. And Jesus is making a pretty profound an audacious statement and promise here. Namely, that all of mine and your and this woman's deepest thirst are satisfied in one place. And that one place is in him. Not in your children, not in your spouse, not in religious performance, not in money, not in sex, not in friends, not in popularity, not in achievement or acceptance, but they are found in Christ. And so we need to understand this, that if we look to anything other than Jesus, then we are going to be just like this woman is, coming with our little jar every day, only to be disappointed. Because our soul was not created or designed to be satisfied by anything or anyone other than Christ. It, we're not created to be satisfied by anything in this world. Only Jesus can satisfy the thirst that eternally he put in your heart. C.S. Lewis, who was a great author back in the day, says it this way, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And hopefully, if you're in this room today and you've not come to this moment yet, Today will be the day where you realize you're not created to be satisfied by anything or anything, anyone in this world. You have a hole in your heart and only God can fill it. 
And we live in a world that tries to fill it with a number of different things. But ultimately, it's meant to lead you to the fact that only Jesus can satisfy that thirst that's within you. And that's what Jesus is telling us. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water, as any of us would say, right? We want this water if it, if it means I don't have to be thirsty ever again. She says, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. All right, that's an interesting statement. Jesus like, this girl's ready to get saved, man. She's ready to give her life to Christ and you're bringing up baggage in her life? Like what? I mean, this is evangelism training 101. A guy wants to get saved, sit him down, pray for him, connect them into the heart and soul class. Let's get them plugged into a small group and let's get them growing. And Jesus is like, hold up. No, we need to talk about what's going on in your life. And we need to talk about the wells that you're looking to, to try to satisfy you so that I can introduce you to a deeper well, a better well that is truly going to satisfy you. Listen to what he says. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Verse 17. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The truth is, you have had five husbands. Like, ooh, at this point you're thinking a fight's about to go off. And the man you now have is not your husband. She says, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And so here we see Jesus is not interested in easy believism. And let me explain what that is where you just pray a little fake prayer with me and refuse to be honest about who you truly are. Like this is not how the gospel works. Uh, the, 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 there's one prerequisite to God doing a work in your heart, and we see this throughout scripture, and it's being honest about who you are and what is truly going on in your life. You know, and this flies in the face of most of the church experiences that many of us have had in this room. Because when we think church, we think, put on the happy face, everything's great, I just killed my kids on the way, my life's falling apart outside, but when I come to church, dress nice, smile nice, everything's okay, get in the car, all hell breaks loose again, and this is just how life works, right? But this is not the gospel. The gospel is where we come and we're honest before God, and he, in that, leads us to repentance because to be partially known is to be unknown. And you cannot be fully loved if you aren't fully known. So Jesus says to this lady, I want you to go get the thing that you are the most embarrassed of. I want you to go get that thing in your life that every time it comes up, you're filled with shame. I want you to go get that thing that has driven you to be at this well at noon because you wanted to avoid everybody in this town because they know this thing about you. And he says, the thing that you're most embarrassed of is the very thing that I came to die on a cross for. And this is the gospel. And until we're willing to be honest about who we are, God will not do a work in our life. And this is the problem with many of our church experiences. We need to learn that the gospel works this way. I don't care what somebody else has told you, this is Jesus talking. This isn't me talking, this is Jesus talking and this is how he works. And Jesus knows that the well she's looking to for satisfaction and he in love 
wants her to know that it's never going to give her what she thinks it's going to give her. And he wants her to turn away from it and find the superior well, the only well. And listen to how she responds. Verse 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, meaning Jesus came from the Jewish people. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. He's got it right exactly where he wants her. And listen to his mic drop. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am him. I'm that Messiah. It's I am, he is not in the original text. It's the God, the God, the covenant God from Genesis to Revelation, you're sitting in front of him, I am he. Talk about a mic drop moment. You know, it's almost like she tries to Jesus juke Jesus. You know what I mean? Like she sees Jesus and he's starting to get to some pretty serious stuff in her life. Like, hey, you're filling your life with all these men and sexuality and relationships and all these things that you think are gonna fill you. And Jesus is kind of pressing in a little bit out of love, not to condemn her. And she's like, hey, what about this mountain over here? And what about this new worship music that's out? So she's kind of like trying to change the subject and get away from the work that Christ is trying to do in her heart. Anybody know anybody like that? Huh? When Jesus starts trying to do a work in us, the first thing we want to do is justify, deny, blame shift, get the attention off of me because I'm not comfortable knowing that I'm an issue, right? But the gospel starts with us realizing that we are the issue and that we need a Savior to do a work in our heart. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us and this woman and Jesus will defeat any argument that we have. You cannot juke Jesus, right? He's, not, he's the best linebacker you've ever seen. You try to juke him, and he's going to square you up every time because he's smart. So she tries to go to worship and worship on this mountain, and Jesus is like, oh, yeah, your sin problem is actually a worship problem. And then he just goes back down because that's how Jesus works, and he brings her to the point where she realizes that her, her, her worship problem is truly a sin problem. And then verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, right? Because Jewish rabbis usually didn't talk to, to women, not to mention a Samaritan woman, but they're scared to death. No one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her, right? You don't try to talk to Jesus because he's always right. Verse 28, then Leaving her water jar, I want you to underline that. Leaving her water jar, the very reason she came, the woman went back to the town. This is the town that she was embarrassed to be seen in and said to all the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Basically, she's saying, I think this is him. I think this is the Messiah. Verse 30, they came out of the town and they made their way toward Jesus. Meanwhile, his disciples uh, or again, always, as always, saying stupid stuff, urged him, 
Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. And Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you, not know, that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? So again, they're like thinking physical, uh, somebody dropped in the Happy Meal by, he's good, and they missed the whole point. Jesus says, my food, verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. Jesus is like, y'all are worried about food and I'm worried about souls. And so when food takes place of souls, we got it backwards. The priority is people not eating. They are ripe for harvest. Verse 36, even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Verse 37, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So how does this woman respond to this saving encounter with Jesus? Uh, she begins to believe and what we see very clearly is that she does two things. One, she leaves her water jar. A lot of commentators are mixed about what this means. I think John is pointing out to us that this old water jar that she came with desires from her old life, probably to serve her husband that was leading her a different direction than Jesus, the very thing that she came to the well with, she left because she had found the better water. And so what we're seeing is that a, a huge evidence of salvation in our life is that we don't just walk away from our old life, we don't want our old life anymore because we found a better life, a superior life. We found exactly what we were created for, which is a relationship with God and to live for the purpose of God, which is the second thing. Immediately, she runs and tells everybody about Jesus. She wants everybody in the city to know what this Jesus has done for her. And she shares her testimony with everybody, not to mention this is the same city where she was embarrassed to walk into. And so now she's went from an isolated, shame-ridden, guilt-ridden person to an unashamed, uh, just ready to share what Jesus has done with everybody. This is what the gospel does in our life. And this is why I tell you guys all the time, if you are not living on mission, if you do not have a deep, great desire that moves you to action to see other people become a Christian, you are not a Christian. Like you have not been saved because it's impossible to experience this saving work to understand that God has given you and shown you the purpose that you were created for and not want anybody else to know about it. It's absolutely impossible. This is why the number one evidence of saving faith is evangelism. And so if, if, if nothing is stirring in your heart to share about your Savior, then most likely he isn't your Savior. And he's not done a work in your heart because when we understand what he's done, we can't sit around and look at the people around us. Look at the people around the world who are living their life trying to fill themselves with a well that's never gonna satisfy them. And we have the cure. We have the, the information that shows them you were created by this God, for this God, and I wanna show you 
the well that you've been looking for. So you don't have to dip into all these other wells that'll never satisfy you. I've got the real well, the superior well, the best well, the ultimate Gatorade, the ultimate thirst quencher to give to you. And this is this Christ. This is why we say here so often, saved people live sent. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and Jesus stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And so based on this woman's testimony, Based on this woman bringing these people to Jesus, now many people in this town have become believers. Essentially, what we see happening in this story is a broken, shameful, lost, just filling her life with things that will never satisfy her woman is saved, and then God turns around and uses an ordinary, broken, sinful person before they meet Christ to spark one of the greatest revivals in the Bible. This is our God. Like, this is what he does. This is why I tell you guys, you don't have to be me to talk to somebody about Jesus. Like, you don't have to be a professional Christian. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to stand on a stage. Before I was on this stage, I was an ordinary person. I would argue I'm still an ordinary person. Just because people see me on the stage doesn't mean anything. God wants to use people like you and me, ordinary people, broken people that have been saved and have been dipping in other wells but now have found the superior well to reach this community, to reach this city. It actually means more for you to talk about your story than it does for me because I'm the preacher and people think I should be talking about it. And this is God's plan. This is our God. This is what God intends to use. He sends her out on mission. He sends her out to do the will of God, which is to seek and save lost people, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is our plan. So today, here's what I want. I got a few minutes left, and I want to share with you three things. That really, the story doesn't need any preaching behind it, but I'm just going to share three things that I think can help it apply into our life. We can relate with this woman so much. I can, you can. And here's the three things if you want to write them down. The first is this. I want you to know that Jesus is the living water. He is. He's the living water, the only living water. Two, the gospel is personal. The gospel is not just a message about Christ and what he's done on the cross. The Bible teaches that the Spirit of God empowers this message and makes it personal to you and me, to where we see the gospel not just as an intellectual message, but we see it as something personal that God has done for us. And then thirdly, I want you to see the fruit of true salvation so that we can examine our lives to see if God has truly done a work in us. So let's talk about it. Number one, Jesus is the living water. The main point of this passage is that only Jesus can satisfy the thirst of your heart. You and I were created by God for God. Nothing else can do for us what only he was designed to do for us us. We all have a God-shaped hole in our heart that can only be satisfied by Christ. So let me ask you a question this morning. What are you looking to 
to give you what only Jesus is designed to give you. And listen, this is an important question no matter who you are, rich, poor, black, white, popular, unpopular, whoever you are, no matter where you are, where you came from, this is an important question because we live in a world where people seek satisfaction and fulfillment and security in all sorts of places. Like there is a natural drift in this world and most of us, we live in this world, so we know this, that, that literally drifts us toward finding satisfaction and fulfillment and security in things other than Jesus. And if we do not wake up and begin to see the world the way our creator sees it, we will miss out on the greatest, greatest thing God could ever give us, which is life as it was designed to be. Secondly, we all have a sinful heart inside of us that is prone to wonder. Some people say it this way, the human heart is an idol factory. That means that I don't have to teach you, I don't even have to teach my kids how to make something a bigger deal than it actually is. They naturally find things to fill this hole in their heart that are not God, and that's sin in them at work. And then third, we have a crafty enemy. And this enemy, whether you believe in him or not, is at work in the world, and he specializes in blinding us and distracting us with idols and worldly things as functional saviors, which I mean are, are, are things that we put in the place of God in our life. And so I'm asking, what is this for you? What well are you looking to to satisfy that deep thirst for God in your heart? Is it your children? This don't have to be bad things. Is it your children? Is it a, is it a spouse? Is it your religious performance, like you're trying to come to church and read your Bible and do the right things, but you're missing the point of all these things is to know God, not to earn favor with God? That's religion. That's not the gospel. Is it money? Is it sex? Is it power? Is it acceptance, approval, pleasure? Is it friends or popularity or achievement? What is it in your life that you're trying to fill that hole in your heart with? The author of 1 John in the Bible teaches us that there are three wells that we naturally tend to look to. These three wells are the pride of life, the lust of the, the, lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. Let me explain what these are. The first well is the pride of life. The world spends billions of dollars a day for you to take a seat on a worldly merry-go-round called the pride of life, right? One of my favorite pastors down in Jacksonville, Joby Martin calls it the merry-go-round of normality. This is where we get in this just normal life in our area where it's you just wake up, you eat something, you go to work, you sell something, you come home, you eat something, you drive something, you watch something, and then you go to sleep, and then you just do that again and again and again and again, and you never think about anything deeper than that. You just kind of get satisfied with that uh, model for your life. And your biggest prayer is that it would be Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Just get me to the weekend. And you live your life for the weekend. And if this is you, you are missing the point of the life that God has created for you to live. God has created you for so much more. At first, this merry-go-round can be fun. It is fun. But then you do it for about 10 years, and you get on this merry-go-round, and you realize it's really not that merry. And you start asking the question, and you begin to think, is this it? Is this all that life has? Is this all that life has to offer with me? And here is Jesus saying, no, it is not. No, it is not. This will continuously leave you thirsty, and only I can quench your thirst forever and ever. 
And for some of us, this is the well that we're drinking from. We're just trying to win the approval of man or the approval of our world. If we can just get this guy to call us back or this girl to like me, or if I can get this many followers or get this popular likes on my post, if I can get enough people to think highly of me, then I will be satisfied. But trust me, the applause of man will never be enough. It will never fill a hole that only God can fill. The second well, John tells us, is the, the well of the lust of the eyes. And this one's easy to get sucked into. We see some stuff, and then we say, man, if I could just have more stuff like that, then I would be satisfied. Just more stuff is what's gonna satisfy me. That same pastor, Joby Martin, calls this the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Think of like a cul-de-sac or a roundabout. I know those aren't the same things, but it's kind of the same principle where you just get in this roundabout, and it really, there's no exit. You just kind of go around and round and round and round, and, and we think if I could just get this new house, or if I could move into this neighborhood, or if I could get this job, or if I could get those new clothes, or this car, or that boat, or this TV, then I'll be satisfied. And then we actually get that thing. And guess what? It doesn't satisfy us. And then we think to ourselves, man, I got an idea. I need more stuff. I need better stuff. And then guess what we do? We got, off of the, we got off of the roundabout, we jump right back on the roundabout and we chase it. And that's why it's called the roundabout of stupidity because the stuff isn't stupid. Like we're the stupid ones that jump in and expect the thing to satisfy us when we already know it's never going to give us what only God was designed to give us. And then the third well John tells us is the lust of the flesh. And this is where we want to feel a certain way. This can be anything from pornography to some type of food and everything in between. It can be a relationship with someone that you think uh, that somebody is gonna fulfill you or you think you're gonna find fulfillment in some sort of drug or the end of a bottle or, or you can pour yourself into the gym working out to try to get this perfect body. It's all the same thing. Have you ever seen somebody who uh, is, is just, they think if they can get to a certain weight that life is just going to be better. I'll be happy if I can just get to this ideal weight. And then I always tell them, have you met a person that's at your ideal weight? And they're like, ah, maybe. I'm like, are they happy? No, they're not happy. You know why? Because when they're at their ideal weight, they want this dessert that's in front of me. And when I'm not at my ideal weight, I want the abs that they got. You know, and so it never works. Like it's literally a revolving door of the lust of the flesh. We wanna feel a certain way and Jesus is saying, hey, you're seeking satisfaction and security in the things of this world and they're never going to give or provide that for you because you have an insatiable soul that can only be satisfied with an everlasting God because you were created by him, for him. He's put eternity in your heart and that eternity can only be satisfied by an eternal God. He is the ultimate Gatorade. He is the thirst quencher that every person in this room is looking for. So I urge you today, if you are looking to a different well other than Christ, then you are in the rat race of life and you are missing out on what Christ has for your life. So stop drinking from that well. Jesus is better and he is. The second thing we see in this story is that the gospel is personal. Jesus is personal. 
Uh, this is what I love about one-on-one encounters, which this one is the longest one in the entire Bible where we see Jesus with an individual. This is an encounter uh, literally with the God of the universe. It's not just an intellectual message that, that, that we receive. That's not what the gospel is. It's a message, but it's empowered by the Spirit of God, and, and it turns into a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Christ. Like, it, it is real where we encounter Christ. We see that what he's done on the cross was not just for the woman at the well 2,000 years ago. It was for you and I. And the Spirit of God makes that personal in our life. And we have an encounter that leaves us changed forever, forever. And this is exactly what we see in this story. In one encounter, this lady's whole life changes. Her view of God changes. Her purpose in life changes and in these encounters, we can learn so much about the heart of Christ. And listen to me, most people in this room, if I had a chance to sit down with you, I'm not saying everybody, but most people, your view of Jesus does not come from the Bible. Your view of Jesus has come from what someone's told you about Jesus. And my biggest challenge for you is to stop listening to other people, specifically people that don't preach the Bible and start reading this Bible so that you know when I stand up here if I'm preaching the Bible or not, and if I'm not, you can walk out. Because the God of the Bible is the well that's gonna satisfy your heart, not some God that somebody's made up that's imaginary that never disagrees with you and lets you do whatever you wanna do in life. This is the God that we see in this, and these encounters teach us about this God, so allow me to point out some things about this Jesus so that your view of God now becomes accurate because that's one of the things that Jesus does with this lady is he corrects her view of God because it was not right. The first thing we see is that Jesus has made a divine appointment with this lady. This is incredible to think about. Literally, Jesus, it says he had to go to Samaria, but we know he didn't have to go to Samaria. The easy thing to do would be go around it, but no. Jesus cared about this lady. Like he literally went through Samaria, to Samaria, to the well, to the field, boom, at a certain time of day to reach this lady. This is our God. Like he cares about the one. Throughout the Bible, you see Jesus cares about individual people. And he goes to them, and he goes to them with the gospel. He leaves the 90, 99 to go after the one. The second thing we see is that Jesus meets her exactly where she is. Jesus is not scared of her sin. Like Jesus, she even tried to clean herself up for Jesus. I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, no, like I know the real you. Like why are you trying to hide behind this fake you that you've created in your head? Like I know the real you and I came here for the real you. Like the real you is who I wanna transform, not this fake you that's preventing me from doing a work in your life because you're not honest about who you truly are which is the only prerequisite to me doing a work in your life. He met her in her brokenness. He met her in her shame, and he transformed her forever. Number three, Jesus didn't condemn her. He saved her. So many of us, our view of God is that he's mad at us. And if you're in your sin, yes, you are an enemy of God, but Jesus didn't come to condemn. 
Like he came to save, John 3, 17. He didn't come into the world to condemn it. He came in the world to save it. And so while there's time, you get the message of the gospel. You get the message of salvation, which is from God. In love, he confronts this lady in her sin, but he doesn't do it to, 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 to condemn her. He does it to save her, to gently lead her to a place where she sees the, 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 who he is and, and leads her to repentance and salvation because there is no salvation without a right view of sin. Like if you don't understand that you are the problem, not just some things that you've done, but like you, like your sinful heart that you cannot change, that always wants to do what you wanna do when you wanna do it, and that's the sin against God that you will be punished for apart from Christ. And when you come to that place, you realize, I can't save myself. I need something greater than me. And that's when Jesus says, I am he. Would you believe? Would you believe that I am who I said I am and that I've done what I've said I've done? Number four, Jesus doesn't do fake. Notice, he didn't, he didn't buy into the easy believism. Hey, you wanna be saved? Hey, you, you don't wanna go to hell? Come right in, we got you right now. Come on, let's, let's do this thing. Sign up, pray this prayer. No, he wasn't interested in saving the fake version of her. He was interested in her being honest about her sin. You can try to fake God out, but he knows you. And the truth of the gospel that he knows you and he loves you, and that is what changes our life forever. When you're fully known, you can be fully loved. Tim Keller says it this way, the gospel is this. The gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but you're more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. The fifth and final thing is this, Jesus opened her eyes to the living well. Did you notice that Jesus didn't try to scare her into salvation? Like Jesus didn't have a track that he opened up and he said, hey, if you stood before God tomorrow, uh, would you die and go to hell or die and go to heaven? That's not, that, that's not the canned evangelism speech that even our Savior uses. Hell is real, don't get me wrong, hell is real, and if you die apart from God, you will go there. But Jesus' approach to evangelism was not scare her into salvation. She wasn't saved because she didn't wanna go to hell. She was saved because she wanted Christ. She saw that he was the well that she had been looking for, that everything else she had filled her life with was not gonna give her what only Christ could give her. And this is why she gave her life. She saw and believed that Jesus was better. You talk about something that'll change your life. If you believe Jesus is better than whatever you're living your life for, then you'll start living for him. And I'm telling you today, he is better. than whatever you think is better, he's better. And you were created by him for him. Number three, the fruit of true salvation. The fruit of true salvation. Did you notice how this lady's life changed after this saving encounter with Jesus? In verses 27 through 42, there are two things that really jump off the page at you. One, she left her water jar. And two, how quickly she embraces the mission, like immediately. Like she doesn't go to an evangelism class. She doesn't say, hey, Billy, how do I share this with my friends? Like literally leaves, boom, goes, let me tell you about this Jesus and what he's done for me. Boom, immediately. And I told you, when she leaves these water jars, I believe it's significant because I believe it's symbolic of her and the reason John told us of leaving her old well. What she had built her life into, if I could just find the right marriage, if I could just find the right guy and have the right family, this is gonna satisfy me. 
And what happens is she comes face to face with Jesus and she begins to believe this well is not gonna satisfy me. This is the well that I was created for. And the very reason she came to this well to get this physical water, she says, I don't want that water anymore. I want this water. And she begins to follow Jesus. And this is what we see as an evidence of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, Paul says it this way. And he died for all, talking about Jesus, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So when we see Christ for who he is and we're reconciled to him, we don't live for ourselves anymore. He'd go on in Galatians 2.20 to say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ that lives in me and the life I now live, I live for him. And so if we're not living for God, but we're still living for ourselves, then we've not come face to face with Christ. And we certainly don't believe that he's better. And this is what the gospel preaches, that he is better. And secondly, she embraced the mission. She went and told everybody what Jesus had done for her. God basically uses her to spark a revival and save the whole city of Sakaar. And you never know what God can do with you. I mean, you understand that. Like when God saved me, I had no idea that I would be a preacher. Honestly, I would have probably told you I'll never be a preacher. I had no desire to stand up and talk in front of people. I had no desire to, to be, even at that point, I didn't even realize what a healthy church was. And then God saved me, and I began to just take steps. I said yes to Jesus. I got baptized. I joined a small group. I began to learn about God. I began to read my Bible consistently to know him, not to check it off a list. And I began to get fired up about Jesus. I wanted to tell people, man, like I've found this life that I was created to live. I have a purpose when I wake up in the day. Like God loves me and he created me. And I began to share with other people and I started seeing people get saved. I'm like, oh my God, like they believe me. <laughs> like they believe me. And Christ began to transform lives, lives after life, after life, after life, after life. Some of you are sitting in this room right now with a transformed life, not because I've done anything, just because I see that Jesus is better and whatever he tells me to do, I'm willing to do it. So now let's flash forward. Who's on the other side of your yes to Jesus? There's probably somebody sitting in this room right now that's here because you said yes to invite them in here. And they're beside you like, yes, please, please see this. Please see that this scripture is true and give your life to Jesus because he is better than whatever you're living for right now. But I'm urging you today to live on the mission of God. There is nothing more rewarding than watch God beside you. And God scared me to death right now. So now that the Holy Spirit's here, um, so I'll end this way. It's the only thing I can do from here. Have you joined Jesus in his work? Are you living for yourself or are you living for other people? Like, have you had the experience that this woman had at the well? Have you? 
Have you come face to face with the fact that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that he has a purpose for your life, and it's better than any purpose you'd ever find? And then have you received it? Because that's what salvation is. It's a gift. It's not something you earn. It's a free gift of God. All you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is be honest about who you are, honest about what you've looked to for satisfaction, and then believe that Jesus is the will. And I just believe there's people with this number of people in the room today that have never said yes to Christ. They've never been honest about who they are before God, and they've never surrendered. They've never turned from that old life and turned to this new life and said yes to Christ. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. I don't, I don't know who you are in this room. But I've been praying all week that God would be speaking to hearts all over this room. And maybe that heart is you this morning. And you're ready. You'd say, Billy, that's me. I know 100%. And you're ready to be honest about who you are. And you're ready to say yes to Christ. If that's you in this room right now, would you just lift your hand? We want to pray for you. Anybody in this room, you'd say yes. Amen. Anybody else? I'll give you a few minutes. Amen. For the rest of us, here's my prayer. God, we may not be at a place of salvation right now. Maybe we've already been saved. But God, maybe we've forgotten who you are and what you've done for us. Maybe we've begun to fill our lives with other wells. God, I pray today would be a day where we'd turn around and we'd say, I'm done with that. God, would you fill me up? God, would you focus me in on the well that will satisfy and the only well that's gonna satisfy? And I pray this morning would be the morning that you'd say, Billy, that's the morning that I got back on track with Jesus. So Father, that's my prayer this morning. God, would you do work in the hearts of people all around this room? God, as we approach Easter, would we remember that Easter is about you and what you've done and the fact that you came to save us, to die the death that we deserve to die, and to raise up to life, a new life that you've designed for us to live in. So today would be the day that many of us would experience that new life. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand up and sing with us?